invite you to be seated. The scripture reading for this morning is from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given to Christ, given to us as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does his work. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed." That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. We are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must no longer steal, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen." And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, may the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight this morning. 
as we hear your word preached to us, as we meditate on it, as we let it seep into the very heart of our souls. And I pray, Lord God, that the words of all my, my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So this morning, as we look at this chapter in Ephesians, I want you all to, in your minds, just real quickly, visualize that uh, set of people in your life who are difficult, okay? Just picture them for a second. How many of those difficult relationships are from the following? Family members, in-laws, co-workers, I guess would probably be a sizable number are from these three categories. And that's because the hardest relationships that we have in life are the ones that we don't choose to have but acquire in the course of life. Our family relations, the in-laws that we inherit from our spouse, uh, the co-workers that come along with our jobs, we do not choose to be related to any of these people like we choose friends or choose a marriage partner, which means that they are far more likely to be the kinds of people that we don't have anything in common with or even that we fundamentally dislike. And moreover, since we didn't elect to be in these relationships, we cannot elect out of them either. Your coworker is still going to be waiting for you every day at the job. Your family members will always be together with you on holidays. And in much the same way, Living in unity with Christ means that we are partner to relationships that we did not choose and that we cannot simply opt out of. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his excellent little book, Life Together, says this, that we belong to Christ because we are in him. And that is why the scriptures call us the body of Christ. But this means, he continues, that if before we could know and wish it, we have been chosen and accepted with the whole church in Jesus Christ, then we also belong to him in eternity with one another. He who looks upon his brother should know that he will be eternally united with him in Jesus Christ. And so our life together in the body of Christ is not an optional add-on to our calling. It's part and parcel of that calling. You cannot be a part of Christ's body without being joined to the other members of that body which is why Paul defines being faithful to our calling precisely in this way, of having humility, gentleness, and the patience to bear with one another. Part of marriage is having to get along with your in-laws. Part of having a job is learning to cooperate with your colleagues. And part of belonging to the body of Christ is living in unity with its members. And moreover, community with other Christians is not simply a quirk of our faith that we have to put up with, it's essential to our health and our union with Christ himself. Each one of us, the proper functioning of the church as a whole, is dependent upon the mutual support that Christians give each other in this life. And so therefore, as we look at Ephesians 4 this morning, I want us to examine three things about our calling to and our gift of community. The origin of Christian unity, the nature of Christian unity, and the practice of Christian unity. So first, the origin of Christian unity. In the section from Bonhoeffer that I just quoted, uh, he also says this about Christian community. Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a, cre a reality created by God in Christ 
in which we may participate. What he means is that Christian fellowship is fundamentally something that we receive rather than something that we have to fabricate on our own. And it's precisely this reason that Paul prefaces his commands to live in unity with one another by saying, live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And by this, Paul doesn't mean that we are somehow to kind of measure up or live up to uh, our calling, but what he means is that we are to live in a way that is appropriate to the calling that we have already received from Christ Jesus And so the imperative to love each other well in the church is one that arises from the life of the Spirit that Christ has already opened up to us. There is one body and one Spirit, Paul says, who is the bond of peace between the members of that body. And thus, living in unity means keeping and not creating the unity of that Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is the tie that binds us all together in Christ and peace because that spirit has resided within each and every one of us who profess faith in Christ. And because the spirit dwells in each one of us, this means that you are already bound together with each other, even in moments of profound disagreement and division with each other. Pastor Timothy Keller puts it like this, For believers in Christ, despite enormous differences in class, temperament, culture, race, sensibility, and personal history, there is an underlying commonality that is more powerful than all of them. This is not so much a thread as an unbreakable steel cable. Christians have all experienced the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus. We have all had our identity changed at the root. So now God's calling and love are more foundational to who we are than any other thing. We profess one faith, we have all been baptized into one body, and we all labor towards the same hope as Christians. And so community is not something that we labor to establish, but a gift that we graciously receive from the Spirit. And moreover, our unity participates not only in the life of the Spirit, but it's also reflective of the deeper unity of God's very own being within the diversity of the persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and behind the diversity of all their works, faith, hope, baptism, there is only one God who directs all things and works in all things. And as creatures who are made in the image of God and who are being renewed in that likeness, as Paul says in verse 24, living as part of a community in unity with one another is a central part of our human nature and our Christian calling. Yet, in our individualistic way of thinking, we get this exactly backwards, don't we? We think that our individuality, excuse me, individuality is primary, and that unity is something secondary, something that we elect or opt into if we so desire. We don't tend to think of living in unity with another person as a as constituent part of our identity as our own individual personalities. And this is because we like to think of ourselves as autonomous and self-sufficient human beings. And we intensely dislike the idea that our individual freedom is constrained by participating in some greater unity that might place its own burdens and demands upon us. And this is true not only of our American society in general, but I think of the American church in particular. 
by and large, American Christians deny the fact, either explicitly or implicitly through their actions, that we are made for community and that we have been saved into community. And so very often, committing to a community in a real and binding sense is treated as something optional and inessential to who we are in Christ. However, according to the scriptures, we are never mere individuals, but always abiding in a greater oneness together. There is only one body and one spirit, Paul writes, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The church has confessed that the ultimate reality behind all things is one God, ever since the nation of Israel confessed that the Lord our God is one in opposition to all the polytheism of the pagan nations. You see, in pagan myths, the world is created out of chaos or formed out of some primal sea uh, or a result of the conflicts between the gods rather than, as in the case in the Bible, spoken into existence by the one sovereign God. You see, disunity is primary in paganism. The pagan gods were always fighting each other, always committing adultery in each other in the myths. And Paul, like first century Jews in general, connected this violent squabbling and adultery among the gods with the selfish desires that characterized the pagans as being greedy to practice every kind of impurity, as Paul says in verse 17. A fact that was borne out by pagan society's violence and sexual exploitation. But Israel and the church confess something different, that standing at the font of reality itself is one God who is, as Paul says, over all and through all and in all. And because of this, individuality is always connected to a greater unity in Christian faith. On the evening before his death, when he prayed his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed to the Father to make Christians one, even as he and the Father were one. And thus God has not saved us merely as individuals. God desires oneness in his creation and his people. A oneness that is not simply a feeling of commonality with other Christians or a nominal recognition that we all profess faith in Christ, but a communion that is a creaturely approximation of the unity that exists between the Father and the Son and the life of God himself. So that is the, the origin of Christian unity in the spirit reflected of God's own greater unity. Now secondly, the nature of Christian unity. What is the nature of this Christian unity? Well, first, Christian unity is unity and diversity and diversity and unity. What do I mean by that? Well, that is, while individual in our individual diversity, there is unity. In our unity, there is also a diversity of personality types and gifts. Just as there are three persons in the Godhead and a diversity of works associated with each of those persons, yet only one God, so there are a diversity of people with a diversity of, of gifts in the church, and yet they all comprise one body. Theologians often look at the reality of the Trinity from two different angles. First, they look at who God is as Trinity in himself, the so-called ontological Trinity. There's a big word for you for the day. 
Um, and this is the Trinity as we find it expressed in the Nicene Creed, where we speak of God as this mysterious Trinity of persons in one being or one essence. But we can also look at the triune God and kind of the, the phenomena of the way that he's revealed to us in scripture through the different works associated with the different persons. And this is the so-called economic Trinity. So the Son, even though he is equal to the Father and of the same essence with him, as he is revealed to us as a distinct person in the scriptures with a distinct mission, uh, in this, because he is sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world. And the same is true of the Holy Spirit, who is equal with the Father and the Son, but is sent by both in mission in the world to inhabit the church and apply the work of Christ to us. And so even though there is a unity of essence in the Trinity, as God has revealed to us, there is also a diversity of roles which we associate with each individual person. Uh, the progression of Paul's oneness uh, hymn, for lack of a better word for it, uh, follows the workings of this economic trinity. The one spirit who is creator of the body, the one Lord who is the object of our faith and whose body we are baptized into, and the one Father who orders and directs all things. And so what Paul's arguing here is that uh, there is an analogous thing that's true of the church. We are all one body, but Christ has graced us with a variety of beautiful gifts that each of us use in our own particular ways. To accomplish our salvation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all work together. And in a similar manner, in order to achieve spiritual maturity in Christ, the members of his body must also work together, each using their unique gifts given to them by Christ for the edification of the church body. From him, Paul writes in verse 16, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. What this means is that we must learn to appreciate the ways that we are different from each other and how these differences complement each other, just as the various members of the body support each other and make the physical body grow. One of the things that has struck me over the past couple of years as I've thought very intentionally uh, about who I am as a person and the advantages and disadvantages this has for me as someone who's entering into this call of ministry is that our strengths are not distinct, our strengths and weaknesses rather are not distinct from each other, but rather are two sides of the same coin. Every strength comes with its own corresponding weakness. And as this relates to myself, I am, I think, like to think, I'm a very creative, imaginative, and intellectual person. And I think that those are some very good qualities to have for my calling. But, and those who know me well can collaborate this, um, I have a habit of fixing so intensely on an idea or a particular vision or a book or what have you that I can lose sight of the very practical details in life. I recently moved into a new apartment, and the housewarming gift that my girlfriend gave me was a calendar. So you can probably read the subtle hint that she was giving me with that one. <laughs> but the fact is that I need someone in my life who is detail-oriented and practical to keep me on task, because it's an area where my strengths paradoxically make me weak. Each one of us has gifts that Christ has given to us. 
And as members of the body, we specialize in what we are gifted in. Just as the eyes see and the ears hear, the heart pumps blood and the stomach digests food. But no one part of the body can function on its own. Instead, it needs to work in concert with the other members of that body. And so the body itself can only survive and grow when it is held and joined together by each part working together. Christ has given a variety of gifts and roles to each of us so that each of us can use them in service of the rest of the body, and each of us can be built up by receiving support in those areas where our gifts make us dependent on each other. However, for this cooperation of different gifts and roles to happen, a second thing needs to characterize Christian unity, and that is the truth of who Christ is. Paul says here that in order for the various parts of the body of the church to work properly, they must be guided by a common understanding of who Christ is and who we are in Christ. Unity in Christian community is always working towards the goal of the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, Paul says. And this is really a natural consequence of what we've been saying so far, isn't it? That Christian unity is not something that we craft for ourselves, but an established fact that we are invited to inhabit through Jesus Christ. And this means something very important. Precisely because our unity is grounded in a reality that transcends our own subjective feelings about one another, unity in community is by necessity characterized by an objective reality. Only a common confession of who Christ is and what he has done for us can provide organic unity to the body. So that is the nature of Christian unity. A diversity of gifts and one that is characterized and governed by the pursuit of a common truth. Now thirdly, what does it look like to practically live out this kind of unity in the body? What is the practice of Christian unity? Because even if we theoretically assent to the idea that we ought to be united together in Christ, we often struggle to know how we can practice this in the concrete reality of the communities that we live in. But Paul gives us a picture of what practicing community looks like here. He says, Speaking the truth in love, we all grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body grows and builds itself up in love. And so what he's getting at here is that there are two things that, in, that are essential to the practice of Christian unity that we can think about. And I want us, so I want us to look at, one, speaking the truth in love, and two, building each other up in love as uh, practices to take on as living in unity in the body of Christ. With regards to a f- the first, speaking the truth in love, A community is only as strong as its members' ability to speak truthfully and lovingly with one another. Any disagreement or slight in a relationship can be overcome as long as people are willing to be honest and humble with each other in that relationship. Because you see, friction is part of any relationship that we might inhabit. There's no perfect relationship in this regard. But healthy relationships are able to resolve differences because each person is able to speak truthfully to another person. But unhealthy relationships involve honest communication breaking down, where either the differences are papered over and the relationship becomes ever more shallow until it ceases to be a real relationship at all, 
or harmful words are spoken in anger that lead to the destruction of that relationship. Speaking the truth and love to each other is always a hard thing, I think, but it's particularly difficult right now because our culture is always embracing us, or excuse me, is always pushing us to embrace one without the other, either speaking the truth without love or trying to love without the truth. A few weeks ago, I read a really fantastic article written by the late Christian philosopher Peter Augustine Lawler, in which he argued that the dominant form of ethics in our society amounts to what he calls a virtue of niceness. Niceness is the non-judgmental, affirming, inclusive, inclusive ethic that dominates large portions of our society at the moment and carefully protects the way that we talk so that what we say will never offend another person. It's an effort of trying to keep love without correspondingly having the truth. However, Lawler writes this about a virtue of niceness. The key objection to niceness amounts to the fact that it is not really a virtue. You can't rely upon it as the foundation for the duties required of friends, family members, or fellow citizens. A nice person won't fight for you. A nice person won't even lie for you unless there's something in it for him. A nice person wouldn't be a good Samaritan if it genuinely required risk or an undue deployment of time and treasure. A nice person isn't animated by love of God or honor or neighbor. Niceness, if you think about it, is the most selfish of virtues, one rooted in a deep indifference to the well-being of others. It is more selfish than open selfishness because the latter at least accords people the respect of letting them know where you stand. I let you do, and even affirm, whatever you do, because I don't care what you do, as long as it doesn't bother me. Niceness is the quality connected with flatness of the soul, of being unmoved by the relational imperatives grounded in love and death. But, at the same time, Waller argues, that a reaction to niceness has developed in our society, something that is also unmoved by the relation imperatives grounded in truth and love, which he dubs brutality. Brutality, as Lawler discusses it, is the attitude that justifies genuinely hateful, spiteful, or vulgar words and actions with the excuse that we are just speaking honestly or speaking hard truths or flouting political correctness. However, those words that we would really like to say to those people, whoever those people might be in your life, are precisely the words that would do the least good in this situation. Harsh speech almost always is motivated by a selfish desire to be right, to vent our frustrations and insecurities, or to inflict verbal harm on those that we are bitter or angry at. And this gives others all the excuse they need to simply dismiss whatever it is we might be saying in that moment, regardless of whether it's true or not. Nobody ever changes their mind about politics or religions because of our Facebook rants or the tweet storms that we do on social media. The core truth of the gospel is is the word concerning the reconciling love of Christ for us, And so if you speak the truth to another in a way that completely ignores this reality, then you fail to believe that the the truth, the genuinely redemptive word, is the word of love and grace spoken by Christ, a word that is as selfless, as impatient, as it is hard. Both niceness and brutality, Lawler argues, are both fake virtues. They are just covers for our self-centeredness and self-righteousness. 
But speaking the truth in love means practicing something that is far harder than either of these. It means speaking to others in a way that has its goal, the edification of another's well-being, and not our complacency or the edification of our own ego. As a result, speaking the truth in love means saying incredibly hard truths to one another and bearing with each other to an incredible extent. It is difficult, it requires courage, but it is exactly what living as members of Christ's body requires if we were to have any integrity. And this is precisely because in Jesus Christ, the truth and the love of God perfectly coincide. The word of God is the love who became flesh for us. He is not an abstract principle. He's not a remote theological dogma. Truth is the person of Jesus Christ. And so unity in Christ means that truth and love can not only go together, but must go together and naturally go together. You cannot have truth without love or love without truth because in Christ they are one and the same. And so first, speaking the truth in love requires that we say incredibly hard things to each other. And this is because love without truth is not love at all, but a lie. We are not simply to ignore people living in ways that are hurtful to us, to others, or to themselves. Doing so is actually a form of hatred when you think about it. It causes hatred to arise in ourselves because rather than dealing with the wrong, we let it fester and we become angry and bitter and passive-aggressive. It's hateful to others because we allow other people to continue their pattern of harmful behavior towards others. And it is hateful towards the person themselves because we allow them to live in a state that is ultimately destructive to their very own souls. Serving the good of another precisely requires us bringing their lives into contact with the truth of Christ because only the truth about Christ can anchor the soul. Living apart from the truth means that whatever appearances might tell us, a person's soul is deeply listless. Paul describes those who have not yet been brought to maturity by the truth as living like ships at sea who are tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. There are people in my life, and I'm certain the same is the case in your life as well, uh, whose lives are charactered by this kind of restlessness, this tossed around at sea. They are not aware of the truth either concerning their own lives or the truth concerning Christ invites us into. And so behind all the appearances of their life, there are poor, unfortunate souls who are miserable in their own restlessness and doomed to be tossed to and fro. And so speaking to another's life is hard, but to truly value the good of a friend means to have the courage to have candor with them. A really good example of this that comes to mind is uh, in my small group a few weeks ago, we were talking precisely about this idea of speaking the truth and love to each other. And a a young woman named Sujin shared with us a a story about a very hard but a very good confrontation she had with a friend. Uh, A friend of hers, a very good friend, was getting engaged to uh, a, a man, and they were in the process of thinking through getting married and Sujin just did not like this guy and saw that there was just something very deeply 
bad about this relationship. And so she went back and forth about thinking whether or not she should actually approach this friend. And she finally decided that the right thing to do was to speak honestly with her friend. And so she took her aside and she said just very honestly, you know, I see characteristics X, Y, and Z in this man. I really don't think you should be marrying him. And fortunately, the friend was very receptive. She heard her. She said, I know you're just caring about my own good, but I'm going to go ahead and marry him anyway because he is the person that I'm in love with. And as time went on, it turned out that actually they're now divorced. And so probably her, what she saw was actually a very true and real thing. And so she doesn't regret the fact that she spoke honestly to this person, even though in the end it didn't change her mind, because what she saw was genuinely true, and she was genuinely concerned about the well-being of her friend. And so as this illustration shows, speaking the truth to another also involves speaking lovingly to another. This love demands that we humble ourselves before others and make ourselves vulnerable to others. Approach others in a posture of humility and self-righteousness when speaking the truth to them. Or excuse me, humility rather than self-righteousness when speaking to another. Because this is how Christ, who is truth and love and perfect coexistence, came and spoke to each one of us. When confronting someone for their sins, first confess your own sins to them. Admit the ways that you fall short of measuring up to the stature of Christ so that they know that you are not coming as a judge, but as a friend who is concerned for them. There's a saying attributed to Martin Luther, which says that telling another person about the gospel is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And so demonstrate to another person that you are simply a hungry soul who has been fed and who wants to show them where they can be satiated with good things. And then finally, always be ready to forgive others when they do see the truth, because God has forgiven you. Ask yourself, when you confront another person with the truth, are you genuinely seeking restoration? Would you be prepared to receive an apology if it was actually given? Love is always compassionate, ultimately concerned with the redemption of another person and not holding on to grudges. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, Paul writes, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it might benefit those who listen. And this leads us to consider the final practice of living in community and unity, and that is unity requires each of us to build up one another which requires us in turn to serve one another. And we build each other up only as Christ has first built each one of us up. Paul describes Christ as the head who controls the body, which means that the attitude that characterizes Christ's own interaction with us should govern the kind of relationships that exist between the members of his body. Before Christ could ascend to be our head, he first had to descend into the very depths of the grave itself. In verse 8 of this passage, Paul reads Psalm 68 in light of Christ's death and resurrection. Psalm 68 is a psalm that describes God ascending up to Mount Zion after defeating Israel's enemies and receiving tribute from the conquered. But in light of Christ, Paul says that God not only receives gifts from men, but he also gives gifts to men. And God's triumph over the power of sin and death required him first to take upon himself the curse of sin and death. 
And so Christ's grace to us is not cheap grace, but a costly grace that required him to seek solidarity with us in the very heart of the grave, to serve us out of his wealth. And so just as we have received from Christ, and so we have received gifts from Christ that we might share those gifts with each other. We are renewed after the likeness of God, putting off the old self of self-gratification, which means that we are now conformed to the image of the God that we see in Christ Jesus, a God who bears the burdens of others and is willing to undergo sacrifice for the benefit of others. And Paul illustrates this kind of mentality in a very striking and beautiful way for us in the example of the thief who now shares in the life of Christ. He says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. In the body of Christ, those who were once, who was once benefited themselves at the expense of others now benefit others to the expense of their own selves. In Christ, we consider all that we have to be at the disposal of another's well-being. And so as you live your lives this week, start thinking about the very simple and concrete ways that you can live a life that builds another person up. How can you, in very ordinary ways, leverage the gifts that you have received to support each other? Think of just one gift that you could share with the others in the next week, the next month, the next year, that would be using that gift in such a way that you would leverage it to help others achieve maturity in Christ. Attend to other people's souls as you attend to your own soul. Because if you're united to Christ, then you are also united to members of his body. And our commitment to build each other up is what determines whether or not that body is healthy and mature. We can be a burden to each other in community or bearing with one another in love, united by the power of the Spirit, we can attain together the whole measure of the fullness of Christ Jesus together. Let's pray. God, our Father, we are thankful for the gift of this community that you've given us, this life together in Christ, which we do not create for ourselves, but which we have called into to inhabit together. I pray, Lord God, that as we go out this week, that meditating on the way that you've given yourself to us, that we and like would go and give ourselves to one another, working for their good, to the edification of the whole body. Lord God, it is only by your grace that we can do this. So I pray today that the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be us this, with us this week and always. In his name we pray. Amen.